vows are a, an important part of how people ratify behaviors. As I said, acts uh, undertaken in moments of weakness or advantages taken of a person in an environment of confusion uh, can lead to a ratification of this very harmful view of who a person sees himself or herself to be. But other things that people do are just as um, uh, sufficient in confirming or ratifying this false image. One of the most common things that people do to confirm or ratify a false image of themselves is to make vows. I will never, I swear, it's, it's a way that a person wishes to emphasize putting distance between themselves and uh, other people whom they view as causing them harm. But these vows become statements that the enemy can use fairly consistently over time to torment you to remind you of a a view of yourself to which you've committed yourself. Now, it's important to understand why people make vows. Typically, people make vows because they are convicted that a form of behavior that victimizes them is so wrong that they commit themselves to a course of action that they believe to be the best course of action to be undertaken in a permanent way and it becomes their default setting. What do I mean by that? Let me give you some examples. These are real examples from my experience in life. Obviously, I won't say enough to identify the persons because some of these uh, events involve confidential relationships. But I'll say enough to establish the fact of what I'm attempting to communicate as well as to provide a basis of understanding that's wide enough to be identified with by persons who either have made such vows or know people who have made those vo- this type of vow or made a vow, especially if you're having to live with or try to help someone who has made such a vow and you don't, you don't actually understand why they can't change their point of view. You may appeal to them reasonably, <clears throat> you may do whatever uh, is, is normal and customary or even go above and beyond in trying to show them another way and they reach that point beyond which you cannot push them. You can't move them, you can't shake them, you can't cajole them, you can't beg them, you can't even intimidate them to move. That's the strength and the power of a vow. Now most people don't actually remember the vows they made, but they do continue to act out of those vows And in that context, the enemy continues to perfect 
his entrapment of them. Example, I knew, I've known two women, uh, mother and daughter, and I've known them for a long period of years. The mother, when I, when I first was introduced to her, chronically lost her job. She went from job to job, and just in the time I knew her, which was probably a five-year period, I would say the most she held a job was for probably eight months. This is an intelligent woman, she had a responsible position, she was, at times she was even uh, in charge of other people. But I would hear the same story over and over again. And the story ran something like this. The boss was a man and he was acting dishonorably and he was acting uh, thuggishly uh, without any consideration for her or the other workers. And that would be her excuse one time after another after another. And on average, she was gone to a new job every eight months, to the point where one time I actually sat down with her at her request. In fact, I sat down with her more than once um, and heard her story. There were two things that always happened when I met with her. One was, she always complained about different men in her life. And the other thing was, she was trying desperately to gain my approval for how she foundationed her life. She believed in the teachings of a particular teacher, that, and she believed that her inside information derived from this teacher gave her a standing that was worthy of my recognition. This was a Bible teacher. Now, there's no evidence that anything she heard was at work in her life, but she would come and present her newest hearing and from this teacher and her understanding of it but it actually had no effect on her life that I could tell. But those are the two things. But in my meetings with her privately, and I knew her socially, uh, so in those engagements, the story of her life emerged. And that story was one of how as a young mother, she was married to a man at the time who was by her description, uh, a terror. And she would get up in the middle of the night and pack up her two children in the car and take off in the darkness, not knowing where she was going to go. They would end up spending the night in a parking lot of some place like Walmart that was lighted. <clears throat> the, the problem with her was, her experience, true or false, accurately re reported 
or inaccurately reported. Her experience with her husband was terrifying to her. She got up and fled, drug her children out with her, and they fled. And the children knew that you fled, fleeing from a father was a part of life. In her mindset, then, she developed this view that all men are terrorists and you must be prepared to leave them at will. So whenever she had a boss and she seemed to have a man as boss, at least in all the stories I talked with her about, uh, talked to her about her boss, the boss was never a woman. But with a man, eight months on average, and she'd be gone. Because she went into the job looking for, looking for and anticipating that the man was going to be a terrorist like that husband from whom she fled uh, was. She subsequently married, but when she married the second time, she married a very docile man because she wanted to be sure that she could control the man. Needless to say, docile men typically do not provide much in the way of security, emotional or financial, so you repeat the process of being disappointed in a man, this time a docile man, but one who does not meet your expectations because he cannot address your underlying need for security and well-being. So you end up taking up for yourself, you're disappointed, so it was layer upon layer upon layer. At some point she made the decision, I will never trust a man. I just cannot bring myself to trust a man. Now that's a vow that ratified a thing that was wrong in the first place. If indeed the first husband was as she described him to me, there's no way he should be like that. He was a terror to her and to her, to her children. Now, I don't know, I'm skeptical about her, her narrative because when I knew her, she was quite flaky. So I don't know if fleeing from the husband was the beginning point of her problem. Very likely it was not. But in those days, it's been many years now, in those days I didn't know how to get back into her story and I don't even know if she would have let me get back into her story. So I began in those days, I began with the story she told me. Now I would have taken her back through that narrative, presuming she would have been willing to have gone back through that because by the time I met her, she just wanted to be confirmed that her decisions were not, uh, that her decisions were still reasonable decisions, a reasonable person would consider her decision so. But she made vows that she would never be under the rule of a man again. And it distressed her life and has distressed her life to this day. She's now an older woman, well into her 80s. She had a daughter 
one of the ones who fled, one of the children packed up in the car who fled. That child was imprinted with this experience as her baseline view of men. I happen to know this situation quite well. She married a very excellent man, a peaceful man, a hard-working man, and one who had experienced a good deal of trauma in his own life. But he overcame and came to the place of seeing the need to rule his family well, ruling for their benefit. When he made the effort to try to change the dynamic of of the family situation, he ran smack into the wall of a second generation being his wife who had also made the same vow. Hers was merely the extension of her mother's vow that she would never trust a man. I worked extensively with the couple and I could always get the man to see something greater than he came in seeing. But I could not move the woman. She refused to come under his authority. Eventually the marriage ended. But what I saw in the process, and there's more to the story obviously, it's not about telling a person's story, it's about illustrating how a vow can hold you in place with a false identity and plunder you, allow your enemy to plunder you with a lie. Uh, Another example of the same principle, Uh, knew a man whose father uh, was a very caring man, but he unwittingly upon his death charged the man with the care of his family, his his mother, his brothers and sisters. And although the mother had no intention of submitting to the rule of this the eldest son, and the brothers and sisters were not inclined to do that either, He was tormented by the fact that his was the responsibility to take care of people, even people who did not want his authority, even people who refused to come under his authority. His baseline was that he was under a vow, he he accepted his father's commission even though he should not have but he lived his life under a vow of making sure that everybody under his rule was okay and taking responsibility for their well-being regardless of whether or not they accepted his authority. You know, I saw the wrongfulness, I saw the wrongfulness of putting people under vows early in my life when I would be traveling and I would say to, my, to Nick, my younger son, uh, who was um, 
just a boy in, in some of those days. And I would foolishly say to him, now son, you are the man of the house. Uh, you must take care of everything while I'm here. A 12-year-old boy trying to rule over his mother, trying to rule over the house in my absence? I don't think so. When, when I did that one notable time and I got home, Lucy called me aside nearly as soon as I walked in the door and said to me, you've got to do something about Nick. I said, what, what's Nick been doing? What do I need to do about Nick? She said, he won't go outside and play. He's been underfoot the whole time you were gone. I'd look around and he'd be sitting and watching me. He said, you need to talk to him. And then I remembered, I'd said to him, he needed to be the man of the house while I was gone. It sounded good, but it was, it was wrong. It was a horrible wrong. Because I was putting a, a, a burden on him that he had no possible way of carrying. So he carried it the way a 12-year-old boy would carry a vow or would carry a commission that he had accepted as guiding his behavior in my absence. And that is trying to rule over his mother. When I saw the reality of it, I said to him, I called him over and I said, Son, you have, I need to ask you to forgive me. He looked at me strangely. What did you do that? I said, I put a burden on you that I should not have. I told you to be the man of the house and you're not a man, you're a boy. So I'm relieving you of your duty and I'm asking you to forgive me for giving you an impossible commission. You are dismissed from your duty. He said, okay, and he turned around, ran out to go and play with his friends. But I had an inkling of what happens when you come under a vow either of your own making, the I will never kind of vow, or I swear that I won't, or when someone puts you under, in bondage, someone of importance like your father or your mother puts you into bondage to something you cannot do. You lack the ability to do it, the maturity to do it, the resources to do it, the intelligence to do it, and on and on. You're simply not able to do it. But if you accepted that, you will feel as a failure at that time and the sense of failing and a failure will follow you. Dealt with a man not so, well, some time ago, um, who very successful in his business, top of, top of his his uh, class of, of people in that business. But he lived waiting for the other shoe to fall, always feeling like he was a fraud, <coughs> pardon me, because he failed at athletics earlier on and he had a father who constantly reminded him that of his failure. So, 
vows are either things that you make yourself to establish a wall between you and some form of oppression, or vows may be things that people put on you, important people like your respectable, honorable people, like your parents, persons of authority, school teachers and the like, that you cannot meet. Vows may result from the treatment of others by you. Uh, kids in school who are taunted and bullied, who are made fun of, may make vows that they'll never speak up again to be ridiculed. Um, again, people who, who experience a stirring up of an emotion that had been there previously, but had been dormant, but in a certain environment, that emotion would be stirred up. I knew this woman who made a vow that she would never be in the same room again with a certain person. And uh, that was about reacting to a father who, uh, who left her mother and she vowed then that she would never have anything to do with her father and didn't for up until he died. But even though he died, the memory of that disappointment guided her actions decades later. So when and that emotion was stirred by an encounter with another man of authority, she transferred the whole weight of how she saw her father, who now was dead and removed from the picture, she transferred the whole weight of her accusations to the man in question. The man did nothing wrong, I happen to know the situation, but the woman could not be placated because the emotion to her that connected her in the present situation back to that past occurrence was so strong, so seminal, that vow was evoked and she trapped herself in the vow and refused to be rescued out of it. So such is the nature of ratification by vows. Uh, Michael Barrett has a substantial teaching on this matter and it will be included as part of an ancillary body of material for the training of persons to discern vows ratification of false identities by vows you enter into at certain points in your adult life. When those things happen, now you've given your enemy an independent basis, <coughs> pardon me, an independent basis for accusing you. So all the things that were put into your soul into the emotions of your soul, all the emotions that were stirred from the womb and coming forward, that were, stored, uh, that were stored up in your soul, which are subject to being triggered by current, environment, current issues in your environment that remind you of these emotions, those all have a new focus and a new force to oppress you 
when those lies now have been agreed upon, agreed with by you yourself. When you say, this false image of myself is true, then your enemy can ignore uh, even going back to the past and he can simply remind you of the time when you said that you would never or that you, you would not or, or however you swore. Or, as we said, ratification through your acts. We said ratification took place through two things, one is your acts, the other your statements. The acts you did that, that in your mind cast you as a guilty actor in the very things that are false that your enemy accused you of. By those two measures, by acts and statements, and by a subsequent order of statements where you accept a false commission and are living out of that false commission when you cannot possibly fulfill that commission. All of these are some of the ways that ratification takes place. By acts, by statements, and by accepting false commissions. So when you're, when you're leading a person through blockage removal, when you come to the place of recognizing that a secondary basis exists for their oppression by the enemy through ratification, look at all three areas to see in what manner they agreed with the lie or they attempted to put up a wall to shield them from the lie or they're trying to live out a commission that uh, was falsely put on them that they have no basis of being able to carry. Usually the spirit of accusation is present here within this mix and the common response of the person is to feel like both a fraud and a failure. Internally, they'll feel as a failure. Nothing they ever do to them will be good enough. And they will look, they will live in anticipation of the quote, the next shoe falling, which is to say they don't believe that they have become who God actually made them to be. And even if they're successful, they will not accept that as the truth of who they are as a foundation for building the future. They will instead listen to the lie and quite often you will see successful people anesthetizing themselves from the anticipation of the lie through drugs, alcohol, using their advanced positions economically, socially, to try and dampen down the cutting effects of this lie. This causes problems which in turn reinforces the accusation that they are frauds and failures. So ratification is a damaging thing that gives the enemy new ammunition with which to oppress you. Now in the next uh, section we will start to discuss how you break these strongholds.